We are going to look this evening at the stewardship of your life. The stewardship of your life. Last week, we talked about the stewardship of God's Word, God's truth. And how Paul's admonitions to Timothy in 2 Timothy to guard that treasure entrusted to him. Uh, Timothy and the early church... And then likewise, us today in the church are responsible for handling accurately the Word of God and being stewards of God's Word because it's a treasure. Well, tonight we're going to look at the stewardship of your life. And as I've told you about, we're going to get into specifics, things like your time and talents and work. And all that kind of stuff that you and I are stewards of. But folks, overarching over everything, we need to think about our life, don't we? Because if he has my life, if he has my heart, then he should have everything else, right? If, if my heart, my life is presented to him as a living sacrifice, then those other things we're going to talk about, my time, my talents... My money, my work, all those things ought to fall into place. Y'all with me tonight? This means yes, this means no. Y'all seem a little subdued tonight. Do we need to get up and get Ruby to play again? Maybe we'll do a little short step, some kind of, some kind of dance and get the blood flowing or something. Okay, find Romans 12, 1 and 2. And then also, I want you to find 2 Corinthians 8.5. 2 Corinthians 8.5. Now, you'll recall what was going on in 2 Corinthians, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is talking about that collection and the, and the gift of finances being taken up. But, but listen to what he says in verse 5. He says, In this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. In a conversation talking about finances, what did he say they did? What did they give first? They gave themselves first. That's important, isn't it? Now, back to Romans chapter 1. And Greg, you may want to take one, just one little half tick back maybe. It sounds a little, little loud to me. But anyway, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, brethren or brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Tennessee Titans center Kevin Long, who played under coach Bobby Bowden at Florida State University, said his college coach always had wonderful ways of inspiring their team with different stories and parables and lessons. Long went on to recount one of the stories Bobby Bowden uh, told that had an impact on him. Bobby Bowden was talking about his own days in college when he played baseball. He'd never hit a home run before. 
And finally, he hit one down the right field line and into the corner. He rounded first base. He looked over at the third base coach who was waving him on. He turned second. He rounded third. He was sprinting all the way to home. He dove into home plate. And the umpire said, you're out. Now, Bobby said at first that was a little strange to him because he knew nobody had tagged him out. He, he had run the bases, nobody had tagged him out, and he beat the ball back home. He made it home plate before the outfielder could get it in. Why was he out? Bobby Bowden said, the umpire said, you missed first base. You missed first base. And Long said, Bowden told their team, he said, Guys, as you get older in life and live your life, you've got to put first things first. And not everything that the world tells you to put first. Not everything the media is going to interview you about after games and all is all of that important. You've got to put first things first. If you don't tag first base in your life, so to speak, and have your priorities right, nothing else you do will really matter. Well, we've spoken about stewardship in general in session one. And then, as I mentioned a moment ago, in session two last week, we spoke about the stewardship of truth. Tonight, let's talk about the stewardship of your life. When it comes to life itself, this is first base, you might could say. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, in weeks to come, we're going to talk about time, resources, work, our spiritual gifts, all of those other things. But first of all, let's think about our life. Are we giving ourselves first to the Lord, as the Corinthians did in 2 Corinthians 8? You see, God is first and foremost concerned about you and me. After all, folks, we've been created in the image of God. And God sent His Son to redeem us. He didn't die on the cross simply to redeem our money or our time or our resources or our work or our hobbies. He died on the cross to reconcile man to Himself. And so if we're reconciled to God through Christ on the cross, then everything else that we have ought to be affected by that. Now let's think about the logic behind the book of Romans for a minute. Sort of the flow behind the book of Romans. What did Paul want to establish first in in chapters 1 through 8? What's Paul talking about in those chapters? Okay, so he's talking about general revelation and special revelation. What else does he talk about there? First eight chapters. Talks about human depravity, doesn't he? Human depravity. 
and how we can't be saved through keeping the law. What else? How about sanctification? Couldn't you, couldn't you put chapter 6 and 7 really in the category of sanctification? Right? Okay, all of those themes in the book of Romans, what's the one word that those things in those first eight chapters fall under? What do we call that? Doctrine. Who said doctrine? Dan, you get A. He's, he's at the head of the class tonight so far. Doctrine. Paul has been establishing proper doctrine. And then in chapter 9 and 9 through 11, he begins addressing the case of Israel. What about Israel? And he's been explaining about through Israel's rejection, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. At the end of the time of the Gentiles, God's going to stir the Jews to jealousy again. He's not done with Israel. And so he's answered that question. What about Israel? What about the Jew? Where do they fit into this? Well, beginning in chapter 12, he turns his attention to right living. You see, first of all, there's what? Doctrine. What's got to be the foundation of our life? Right belief. Right belief. Y'all with me tonight? You look kind of foggy out there. Y'all with me tonight? Right belief. What do you believe? What's, what's, the, what's your belief system? What's your doctrinal system? Do you believe God's revelation of Himself? That's first. That's that foundation for your life and my life. But then beginning in chapter 12, what's he be, begin to address? He begins to address the living out of that doctrine. Doctrine isn't something that we just keep shut up in the classroom. Doctrine is intended for life. What we study inside the walls of the church as we leave the church tonight and go out into the world, it's to affect our relationships, our work, and everything else about us, right? If your doctrine doesn't affect your life, doesn't change your life any, then something's suspect about your doctrine. Would you agree with that? And so beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul begins discussing the application of everything that he's just talked about. Same thing he does in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, he's laying that foundation of doctrine. Beginning in chapter 4, he says, Now let us therefore walk worthy of the vocation that we have. And so the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians, he's talking about living out doctrine. That's what he's doing in the book. Of Romans. The life that flows out of Christian belief. And it's interesting, the first thing that he wants to drive home, beginning here in chapter 12, is that we're to live a life of total surrender. We're to think in terms of the stewardship of our life. 
On Sunday morning, we take up an offering. We put our offering in the offering plate. But it's almost as though he would have us think about the offering plate coming around. And and you put it down and you step up into it, right? And you offer yourself first. You give of yourself. And that's what he begins talking about. And he mentions, first of all, that it is to be a willing offering. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We're to make a holy presentation of ourselves to God. What happened in Genesis 22? There was a watershed moment in Old Testament history that happened in Genesis 22. Abraham offered Isaac. Could you imagine being in Abraham's shoes? You and your wife in your old age finally have a son. The child of promise. You were already old when God promised him to you. You were already old then. You've waited another 25 years. And now Isaac's come along. And God tells you, I want you to go to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice this boy to me. Now, see folks, we know the end of the story. We know that God didn't intend for Abraham to do that. God just wanted to see where Abraham's heart was. The Canaanites around the Israelites, they would offer their children Abraham, do you love me, the true and the living God, as much as your pagan neighbors love their false gods? That must have been the the motivating question that, that God really had in mind. Abraham, do you love me as much as the other people around you who are lost as they love their things and their gods? And so there Abraham passes the test. He gets the wood, a knife, and he journeys to Mount Moriah. And there on Mount Moriah, he ties up Isaac. He's ready to plunge the knife in. And God says, stop, don't do it. Now, that I, now I know how much you love me. You would not even withhold your own son from me. And then God repeated his blessings to Abraham and the covenant that he had earlier made with Abraham. He repeated all that. And the things that he was going to do through Abraham and Abraham's descendants. Folks, now that's a story that has enormous potential for us as as we look at Romans chapter 12. Because here was Abraham offering Isaac. But what's Paul say in Romans 12, 1 that we're to do? We're to offer ourselves. Now what's the motivation behind such an offering? He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by what? 
by the mercies of God. In other words, it's the right and the reasonable thing to do in light of God's redeeming grace and mercies. Now, let's review some of those things from the book of Romans. Now, again, you go, you go back to chapter 1, and what does he say the condition of much of the world is? They have suppressed the truth of God, right? They are without excuse. Chapter 2, he talks about those who try to be justified by doing good. He continues that discussion in chapter 3, how we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in verse 25 of Romans chapter 3, how God has sent His Son Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. Chapter 5, he says, being justified. Uh, by, uh, chapter 4, first of all, Abraham is the great example for us because 400 years before the law, God said to Abraham that Abraham was justified. He was justified by faith. Abraham wasn't justified by the keeping of the law. The law wasn't even established yet. The law wasn't going to come for another 400 years. And so Abraham is that example of justification by faith. Then in chapter 5, chapter 5, we reach a very important turning point in the book of Romans. Chapter 5, what's the result of being justified by faith? Peace with God. We have peace with God. Folks, let let that sink in. Think again about your depravity. Did you deserve salvation? Absolutely not. Did you do anything to earn it? Absolutely not. Salvation is a gift. An undeserved gift. And by... Placing your trust in Christ and Christ alone, you are reconciled to the sovereign God of the universe. Not only reconciled, but he goes on there in chapter 5 to talk about now through Christ who is our high priest, we have entrance into the presence of God. Entrance into the presence of God. Now, would you say that God has been good to us? Has God been good to you? Amen. Amen. Again, just think of the depths of your sin and how the Bible said there's none righteous, no, not one, none that seeks after God. Nothing you and I could do to save ourselves. Salvation is holy of the Lord. Through Christ, we're saved. God demonstrated His love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so it's like Paul is getting to chapter 12 and he's, he's saying, folks, just stop and think a minute. Let it, let it soak into your mind and your heart what God has done for you in your behalf. You are a recipient of mercy. You are a recipient of grace. God did not have to save you or me. 
God would be perfectly just in sending every single one of us to hell. Perfectly just in doing that. Because we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And think of all of your past history, things you can look back in your life now that was God at work bringing you to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's like Paul is saying, I I, I just, I really want this to sink in in your minds. How benevolent and kind God has been towards you. What God has done in your behalf in saving you. Now, in light of that, because of all of these mercies and because of all of this grace, God is asking for full surrender. A willing offering. We're no longer under the mastery of sin. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We cry out, Abba, Father. We have a hope now that is steadfast and true. We have the promise that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And so in light light of all this, we're to make a willing offering. A willing offering. Now, what's he say about this? First of all, that it is to be a permanent offering. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The tense there, uh, to present, suggests a once-for-all decision. He's asking us to have one of those watershed moments in life where we once and for all surrender the reins of our life over to Christ. One of those moments where you draw a line in the sand. And make a decision about who is going to be in control of your life. Have you done that? Have you made a holy presentation of your life to God? Now yes, that decision has to be revisited and renewed from time to time. There's nothing wrong with that. But can you go back in your mind and say there's been that There's been that time period in my life. There was a day, an hour, or a particular period of time in my life where I drew that line in the sand in my life and I said, God, from this moment forward, I'm yours. A willing presentation. A willing presentation. That permanent offering that you said, God, I'm yours. And you presented yourself. No turning back type of sacrifice. It's said that when Cortez and his troops landed at the shores of Mexico and they were going in to to conquer the land, the troops looked back and all the boats, all the ships out in the harbor, Cortez had set the ships on fire. The message was, there's no turning back, guys. There's only one direction you can go marching forward. I'm not, I'm not giving you a, an, an avenue of retreat. And that's the type of decision that we need to make to follow Christ. 
That's the type of decision. And that's what he's inviting us to do. Is there any questionable area of your life? Lay it on the altar. What are your weaknesses? Lay them on the altar. What about God being in charge of your resources? Lay them on the altar. What about a life of ministry? Lay it on the altar. What about your time? Lay it on the altar. Present your life to God. Well, a second thought about this offering, it's a personal offering. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, to offer your bodies. He's speaking to the church, but it's a decision that every individual member in the body of Christ is being asked to make. Now, folks, a lot of times you and I think about what we're going to receive from the Lord. And yes, we do receive benefits from the Lord, but we do a lot of upside-down thinking about what we're going to receive from the Lord. The Bible is saying here that we need to concentrate on what we're going to offer, what we're going to present. And then what we receive will be based on what we present. Paul said you give yourself. It is to be a personal presentation nobody else can do that for you boy if parents could do that for their children right if you could make this kind of decision for your grandchildren you have a grandchild that might be living in rebellion you wish you could make this decision for them but you can't can you they have to It's a personal presentation. They've got to make that decision. It's like Joshua back in the Old Testament. Joshua 25, he looked at Israel. You do what you want, but as for me and my house, it was personal. He says it's to be a physical offering. What does he say that we're to present? He says present your bodies. The body stands for your whole life. The Greeks viewed life too oftentimes. They would try to divide up a man into little different categories. Little different categories. And and they'd serve God with this area of their life. They'd serve their gods, their false deities with this little area over here, this little area over here, this... And they'd keep out little areas for themselves or areas that they thought was off limits to their gods. But the Bible says that's that's not Christianity at all. We present all of us, our, our whole body, everything about us. Not just our hands, but our feet. Not just a Christian on Sundays, but a Christian on Monday mornings too. All of us, all the time. Present all of yourself. Now, many times, what do we want to do? We want to tip God. I'll give God a little bit here or there on the side. And when we think in terms of stewardship, we think that's enough. But when we're talking about the stewardship of our life, that's not good enough. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, 
you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. If you're a Christian, you hear what he's saying? You don't even belong to you anymore. Now think about that. You don't even belong to yourself anymore. If you've been born again and Christ reigns as Lord and Savior of your heart, you're you're not even your own anymore. And so the result of that, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, you're to glorify God in your body. And that's what he's saying here. You need to make that offering of your physical self. All of you present your bodies. Remember what he said in Romans chapter 6? There were times in the past where you presented the members of your body to deeds of unrighteousness. Now you need to present the members of your body to righteousness. And it is to be a perpetual offering. He says a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament a sacrifice was made... And when it was made, it had to be killed first. And one day, you and I might have to die for our faith. I mean, after all, folks, there there are places all over the world tonight where there are Christians dying for their faith. That could happen in North America someday. We hope not, but it could. But what's he asking us to do for him right now? He's asking us to live for him. And it's a living sacrifice because even though you make the presentation today, it's got to be fleshed out every day in the real world of your life. Somebody has said that it's like we're to roll out of bed each morning and roll up onto the altar. That's a good image. And finally here, he says it is to be a pure offering. He says, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You belong to God now. You're to live for His purposes. That's what it means to be holy. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Well, not only do we make a willing offering, but I want you to see secondly that he's talking about here a winsome offering. Holy and acceptable to God. That type of offering that he's just encouraged us to make, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, he's saying that's the kind of offering that will be winsome to God, that will be pleasing to God. That's the kind of offering that God desires. Now folks, to understand what he's getting at here, I want you to think, Back again, I think he's making a lot of allusions back to the Old Testament. What what could we say about all these offerings in the Old Testament? Of how they had to be winsome. They had to be... They had to be pleasing to God. They had to be unblemished, right? It had to be a certain kind of offering, right? A male without blemish. 
And it had to be offered correctly too, did it not? I think of what he said in the book of Malachi about how the, you know, the people had come back from exile and they had rebuilt the temple again after it had been uh, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They'd rebuilt it and boy they were expecting I, I guess just tremendous things to happen and life just kind of got back to routine. And it wasn't long before the people of God just sort of settled into a complacency. And by the time you get to the book of Malachi, the book of Malachi says that people were coming to worship and they were just worshiping half-heartedly. Their offerings were half-hearted. They were giving to God the leftovers. And even the priests were despising the offerings. And you remember what God said to the people through Malachi? Try offering to your governor what you're offering to God. Would he accept what you're offering to to me? Would your governor accept that? No, because you're offering the leftovers. You're offering the blind and the lame and the blemished. And what did God tell the people in the book of Malachi? What did he say about those offerings? Would he receive them? Would he receive those offerings? No. He rejected those offerings. In fact, he even went so far as to say, I wish one of you would just go to the doors of the church and shut the doors so that my people would not come into my temple and defame and defile my name and my holy place. Wow. Again, they were complacent, half-hearted, Giving God the leftovers instead of giving Him the best. And then what happened in the, in the book of Haggai? What was going on there? Same thing basically, but what was the historical situation in the book of Haggai? Anybody remember? What was going on in the book of Haggai? Now this was... The book of Haggai was before the temple was completed. The rebuilding of it. Come on, y'all know. What was going on in the book of Haggai? Had they finished rebuilding it? No, were they even giving wholehearted attention to rebuilding it? No. You know what God challenged the people about in the book of Haggai? He said, you know what? You have finished your homes and your businesses. And you've put everything about your life in order. And yet my house still lies in ruins. It's not finished and God said so here's what I'm going to do from now on until you finish it 
Whatever you make, I'm going to blow on it and get rid of it. I'm going to disperse it. Because you've put attention on your things and forgotten me, says the Lord. I'm going to allow you to take in in abundance, but you're going to have absolutely nothing to show for it. Because I'm going to blow on it and disperse it and bring it to naught and get rid of it. Until you give attention to my house again and you finish the work of the Lord that I have called you to do. Because my name will be great among the nations. Now, folks, what's the point that I'm making? In, in both of those scenarios, what kinds of, were those winsome offerings that were pleasing to God? No. Those offerings being presented to God were utterly rejected by Him. Rejected by Him. So what's Paul saying? Paul is saying, let's go back and look at it again. In verse 1 here, I appeal to you therefore, brethren, uh, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. In other words, when we present our bodies a living sacrifice that is holy, guess what? That type of wholehearted sacrifice is pleasing to him. He will accept it. The stewardship of our lives where we offer ourselves to God first. And we totally present ourselves unto Him. He will accept that. And notice he goes on to say, which is your spiritual worship. The stewardship of your life, the offering of your life to God is part of your worship. We think of worship being what we come in here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or a, or, or a Sunday night. What we do here in this place is our worship. And he says, no, 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 no. That's not all of your worship. What you do every day in your life in offering yourself to God is part of your spiritual worship. Everything about your life is part of your worship. Everything. Your work tomorrow, the kind of steward you are with your finances, how you serve the Lord in day-to-day life, how you live your life, what you're living for, what you're doing with your time and energy... The totality of your life, the totality of my life is part of my offering, part of my worship to God. It's not something we click on when we walk through these doors and we walk back out through these doors and we click it off. The totality of your life is part of your worship. 
That is why Paul said to the Colossians in 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And so you see what Paul is talking about here? He's talking about the Christians living on a whole new level. A whole new level. There's a danger that we would live simply on the sensual level, the carnal level, ruled by our senses. The beloved Bible teacher John Phillips says, he thinks to describe this, he says, Think of each of the following expressions. I don't like the smell. It's too hot. I'm too tired. It's ugly. And as John Phillips writes, what do each one of those expressions state? Each one of those reflects a physical reaction. Being ruled by our senses. Being governed by what we see, what we hear, by what we touch, by what we taste. Now, is it possible for a Christian to live on that carnal level? Yes, unfortunately. And too many do. Paul is talking about here that we need to live on a higher plane, on a spiritual level. That we would be led of the Spirit. That we would not live simply by our emotions or our feelings or our senses or what is comfortable to us or what what appeals to our fleshly drives, that we would not live according to that, but that we would be led of the Spirit and led of God's Word, and that we would live on the, on the spiritual level, a level pleasing to God. And he's saying here, when we live on that level and we present our lives, all of our lives to God as a living, holy sacrifice to Him, that's part of our worship and it's pleasing to God. Now folks, that's good news, isn't it? God wants your life, my life, to be pleasing to Him. We can be grievous. The way we live our lives, we can be grievous to the Lord. We can allow sin and disobedience and hindered relationships and bitterness and unforgiveness and all these things to be such a part of our lives that we grieve the Holy Spirit. And we hinder what God wants to do in and through us. Or we can live our lives as that offering to God that is holy and pure and pleasing to Him and part of our worship. And it's accepted by Him. It's honoring to Him. It glorifies Him. But again, it's that offering of ourselves First, not just our time, talents, resources, work, but all of me. I give God my best. I give Him everything. There's no hidden rooms, no hidden closets in my heart that He's not the master over. 
He has my life. He has my affections, my relationships, my passions in life, my desires, my goals. All of my life is to be centered around Him. And that's pleasing to the Lord. That's the stewardship of life. Now, the third thing I want you to notice about this, he's talking about a wholehearted offering. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In this wholehearted offering, there is to first and foremost be a refusal to compromise. He says, do not be conformed to this age. Philip's translation says, do not be squeezed into the world's own mold. It's it's as though this world, this this world that we live in, has a set of standards. What what does this world want to do to the Christian? What does it want to do to your influence? Hmm? Make us toothless. That's a good way of putting it. Make us insignificant. That we'd just blend right in. The, the world, a, 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 a Christian living his or her life for Christ is convicting to the unbeliever, isn't it? The world wants to squeeze us into its mold. It just wants us to kind of come down to its level and just live like everybody else and blend in with everybody else. And, you know, it's the old thought, while in Rome, do what the Romans do. Nothing distinctive, nothing special about your life, nothing different about your life. And he's saying here... That we are not to be conformed to that. We're not to be conformed to the world's ways. Or the world's philosophies. We're to refuse to be a part of the world's mold. Religiously what does the world want to say? Everything's the same right? Any way to God's just as good as another way, right? That's the view of the world. Why is Christianity so exclusive? Why can't these people over here serve this God? These people over here serve that God. Why do you Christians think you're the only way to get to heaven? Because that's what God's Word says. So the world... Wants to get us out of this way that we think and squeeze us into its mold religiously. Just live and let live. In the world's philosophies, there's secularism. Secularism states that that we're on our own. We're just mammals. We're just animals. When you die, you die. There's nothing else. Nothing special about human life. Or materialism. 
Since nothing but this world has any value, then live for this world. Just accumulate things. Live for the world. Live for the pleasures of the world. Live for entertainment. And what are we seeing society do? We're seeing society run more and more after that, right? And where does secularism and materialism end? It ends in hopelessness and despair. Then there's humanism, very atheistic. Humanism holds that man, not God, is the center of the universe. Man is the measure of all things. That's a, that's a philosophy that came very, became very predominant back in the, the days of the Enlightenment that spread through Europe. Folks, the challenge for Christians in this world is that we're in this world, but not to be of this world. We're not to be conformed to it. We're not to be conformed to this world's pattern. Okay, if we're not going to be conformed to this world's pattern, then what's the secret? And that's the last thing that he talks about here, the renewal of the mind. He says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The word transformed here is the same word that is used twice in the Gospels of Jesus being transfigured. You see what he's saying here? The Bible, the Bible is pointing out that there is a sense in which we are to be changed. We're to be transfigured. We're to be renewed. It's the word from, from which we get our word metamorphosis. We think of the caterpillar that metamorphosis takes place and the caterpillar turns into the beautiful butterfly. When we're first saved, it's like we're that caterpillar. But the work of the Lord has begun in us. As we're in God's word. As we're in fellowship with God's people. As we're renewing our minds. Putting our affection now on the things of, this, uh, of the Lord instead of the things of this world. Our minds are being renewed. We, we up to the point of our conversion... We, we fed on the things of the world. We, we just read everything, the, the things of the world, the books and magazines and all the, all the thinking patterns of people in this world. We were just saturated in all that, right? But then you get saved and God's Word comes alive to you. You start reading it. And memorizing it and reflecting on it, that light switch comes on when you get saved when it comes to God's Word. You start reading God's Word. Again, you start fellowshipping with the other believers. You start serving the Lord. And you may not even notice it, but others notice it little by little over time. What, what happens to the Christian? What's going on? You're changing. You're not the same person you used to be. 
Your mind is being renewed on the truth of God's Word. And the Holy Spirit is using that, using God's truth to transform your heart and your life. You're instantly at salvation made that new creation in Christ. But for some people, you know, for some people, boy, that changes radical up front. For others, things are a little slower, maybe less dramatic. But nonetheless, whether you're one of those that was instantly, dramatically changed overnight or little by little, nonetheless, the end result is to be the same, that we're to be changed more and more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And if that's not happening in your life, it's not happening in my life, then we're being disobedient to God. But you see, all this, go back to where we started. All this comes about as we offer what to the Lord first? We offer ourselves to the Lord first. We present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice Holy and acceptable unto Him. As we do that. This renewal process just continues. To where we can say, you know, I'm not, I'm not what I ought to be yet. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. That there is this ongoing maturity taking place in our lives. That little by little by little by little by little, people start seeing more and more and more of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Right? That's this renewing process that he's talking about going on here. A renewing process. You see, folks, as part of the fall, the fall of man, what does Paul say about the human mind and the human understanding in the book of Ephesians? The human mind and the human understanding is what? It's darkened. It's futile. It's futile and darkened. And he says, all of us at one time, All of us were a part of that. And we were dead in trespasses and sins. But now that we're saved and the Lord has lifted the veils and clicked on the light switch. And now we see what God is talking about in His Word. Week by week, month by month, year by year. Maybe slowly, but still steadily, hopefully nonetheless, this transforming process is taking place. And this offering of ourselves to God is pleasing to Him because this work that He is doing in us, this sanctifying process, is... The will of God, as he says in 1 Thessalonians 4. What is the will of God, he says? The will of God is this, your 
sanctification. It is a renewal. It is a change. It is a very, very real change. And then what is the benefit of this? Look at the benefit that he gets at. At the end of verse 2. He says that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as I present myself to God, a living sacrifice, and the way I live my life every day is part of my worship to Him, and God is renewing my mind and my heart, His Holy Spirit is taking His Word and more and more and more conforming me to the image of Christ. Then more and more and more over the course of my life, I am able to discern what? The will of God. As a Christian matures and grows in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, little by little, over time, a Christian ought to grow in their understanding of God's will. An unbeliever or a baby Christian or a Christian who's living in carnality, you ask them about the will of God and they may be clueless. But somebody who is day by day making this offering of themselves to God and they're growing And the Spirit of God is using the Word of God to bring about this transformation in their life. More and more and more in your life, you're able to see what God's will is. God's will becomes clearer and clearer and clearer to you. Now much of the will of God we know simply by reading the Word of God. Because His will is revealed in His Word. But as you read the Word of God and see the the will of God in in these clear black and white issues and you start seeing in the Bible how God works in His world and how God works in people's lives and the decisions that the people of God made, little by little you're able to know even in those gray areas of life more and more and more what the people of God ought to be doing. It just becomes clearer to you. The more you walk with God, the more this maturing process is taking place, the will of God in many areas gets easier to discern. You take take a man who's living in carnality and gets in a crisis and he tries to discover God's will in a crisis... And he doesn't know what it might be. But you take a person faithfully day by day, walking with the Lord, making an offering of their life to God. Then when the crisis comes, there's that intimacy with God that they've developed, that relationship with God that they've developed over time. And it's easier for them to be able to discern what God's will is. And notice what he says about the will of God. Because how does the world think about the will of God? The world thinks about the will of God. That it's, it's bondage and it's restrictive. And God's a cosmic killjoy, right? 
Isn't that the way the world thinks about God? But the Christian discovers that the will of God is what? It's freeing, it's liberating, it's joyful, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. And so a whole new orientation to one's life. Completely different orientation. Folks, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is one of, the, one of the most exciting challenges in the New Testament that God's people are given. But again, I want you to notice where it starts. It starts with the stewardship of your life. Giving of yourself first to the Lord. And that is a never-ending thing, a day-by-day thing, that you make that presentation of your life to the Lord. Yes, it started at a moment in time, but day-by-day, there's the renewal and recommitment of that decision to glorify God in all that you do. And as you make that presentation of yourself to God, And this refusal to conform to the world be renewed in your mind. You're able to prove the will of God. The Christian life then becomes an exciting journey, a relationship. It's not dull, it's not boring, it's not a burden to us. It becomes the thrill of your life. To get into God's Word, into prayer, into fellowship with other believers, and to see what God is up to and what God is doing. And where is God calling me to join Him in His activity? That's the kind of life that we were created to live. Not a life in the darkness of the world among those who don't know God, and they're living every day of their life in futility, in hopelessness, in darkness, and in futility. That's not how you and I were created to live our life. Well, the question is, Have you made this wholehearted, no-strings-attached kind of commitment to the Lord? Have you made that? Have you offered everything to the Lord? Everything. Because again, after all, remember, you're not your own anymore. If you confess Christ as your Lord and Savior... You are not your own anymore. I am not my own anymore. We have been bought with a price. We belong to Christ. As you offer yourself, are you being transformed? Is that process taking place in your life? Do you see it? Do others around you see it? Is your life being shaped and molded? Are you becoming more and more like Jesus Christ? 
Are there some areas that you see in your life that you've already conformed to the world's standards? Maybe already some areas you'd say, you know what? I'm being squeezed into the world's mold. And you need to confess that and deal with it. Allow God to deal with it in your life. The stewardship of your life. Folks, if we get this one down, if we get this one down, when we begin next week talking about our time, our work, and our money, those things won't be any challenge for us. If we get this one down. But if we struggle with this one. We'll struggle with those others too. Because we're always fighting with God. Over who's in charge. And who's going to be in charge. With our lives. But if we get this one down. The other ones just fall into place. Right? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your mercy that has saved us. Your mercy and your grace. And that it is so undeserved in our lives. Lord, thank you that you don't give us what we deserve. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, in that relationship with Christ, it means that we are reconciled to you. We are no longer at odds or at enmity with you. And as Jesus said in the Gospels, I now call you my friends. What a privileged place to be in. And Lord, as a result of that, may we understand that we are to die daily to self. We are to present ourselves, all of ourselves, to you. We're not to think in terms of I'll give this or that to God, but I'm going to keep this to myself. We're to present all of ourselves to you. As a living sacrifice. Lord, that's the stewardship of our life. Help us to understand this truth tonight. That the stewardship of our life comes first. And this renewal process that is a part of that. And Lord, if we will surrender to that. We will not face bondage, but we'll face liberty and joy and peace. Thank you, God, for this Christian life that you have called us to. It is a journey. Sometimes a journey filled with lots of bumps in the road, lots of curves, lots of valleys. But God, we thank you that you're with us every step of the way to bring us out safely on the other side until we see Jesus. 
Now, God, as we leave this place tonight, help us to understand this, this week that we really don't belong to ourselves if we confess Christ. We really don't belong to ourselves. And that means that we're not to simply govern our lives by what makes us feel good or comfortable or the pleasures that we might delight in. But we're to think about pleasing you first and foremost and living to glorify you. Lord, may we live with that passion day in and day out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.